The puff, the hanky, that you see here is an, a nice accessory. Uh, it should complement what the customer is wearing. So as people were put on the next train, suddenly our names, named by my parents, sister and I, were called out and we were exempted. So that Now we're getting very close to an Israeli election. I'm not sure whether this election should have been called at all, but it is. It's costing the Israeli people a lot of money. What do you th see as the outcome? I want to put the maple leaf in the arch. And he said, why? So that people know, Canadians know, that this is McDonald's of Canada. My favorite from a Canadian men's fashion magnate to the lawyer who brought McDonald's to Canada, plus a radio personality and three Holocaust survivors who later educated thousands. Canada's Jewish community said goodbye in the past few months to many esteemed community builders. And on today's episode of the CJN Daily's Honourable Mention, we pay tribute to these honourable men and women, including Harry Rosen, who founded a chain of high-end menswear fashion stores, George Kohan, who opened a McDonald's in most of Canada and in Russia, too. Zelda Young, the longtime host of a daily Jewish radio program. And Holocaust survivors Vera Schiff of Toronto, Willie Glazer in Montreal, and Rabbi Erwin Shield of Adath Israel Synagogue in Toronto. He lived into his 104th year. And Moshe Goldstein, the father of our own, former CEO, Yoni Goldstein. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Thursday, January the 18th, 2024. Welcome to the CJN Daily's Honourable Mention, sponsored by Metropia. And back in the co-host seat with me is Ron Silag, the CJN's reporter emeritus. Hey, Ron. Hey, Ellen. It's very good to be back after our little break. Uh, I guess it would be since the summer of 2023 was our last episode. We've been laser focused, though, on covering the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack on Israel and the aftermath and the war and its impact on Canada. So any of you regular listeners or followers of the Canadian Jewish News will, of course, seen and heard our coverage of the murders of the eight Canadians in Israel and the obituaries that we've done, including peace activists Vivian Silver and Judith Weinstein Haggai, and also on all the young Canadian kids killed by the Hamas terrorists at the Supernova Music Festival. But... Ron, we know that here at home, Canada's Jewish community has said goodbye to many prominent Canadians. And so as 2024 starts, we're going to pay tribute to them. Well, I met Ray Kroc, and Ray is the founder of the company. And Ray was a very infectious sort of guy. You meet him and his enthusiasm was just was limitless. And all of a sudden he says, George, you know, what an opportunity to go to a country like Canada. And he didn't know Canada well, nor did I. He said, and bring McDonald's, it'll be great. So, Ron, we're going to start off with a quiz for our audience, and maybe I'm going to get you cold because I haven't told you I'm going to do this. Do you know what is so significant or interesting about the Golden Arches logo of the McDonald's in Canada? Are they different from Golden Arches logos everywhere else? Correct. They, they are different. So they're Correct. unique to Canada? The yellow part is yellow. It's the same, but... The red part is... It? No. Red and white or no? So if you look at the bottom of the M, in the middle where the M joins, there's a red maple leaf. I've never actually noticed that before. I wonder if our listeners have. 
I haven't noticed that either. In fact, uh, uh, you never go to McDonald's. Well, I, <laughs> I was going to say I never go to my. I haven't been to McDonald's since um, we since my kids were very very little. If the Golden Arches logo is different, it's the only country it's allowed to have that. George Cohan is responsible. He was the founder of McDonald's in Canada and also in Russia. But he wanted to do this with this little golden arches with the maple leaf to show that we are not like the United States when he founded Canada's McDonald's franchise back in the 60s. So let's start off today with a tribute to honorable mention number one, which is George Cohan. When did he pass away? And tell us a little bit about him. He died November 24th of last year. He was 86, peacefully at home in Toronto. George Cohan was American. He was born in Chicago attended Northwestern's law school, uh, went to work for his father's, a sort of a, a standard experience. After graduating, he was drafted into the Air Force, went back to his uh, father's law firm. How did George Cohan end up becoming Mr. Canada McDonald's? Well, he was a young lawyer uh, in Chicago, came across a gentleman named Ray Kroc. Ray Kroc was, of course, the founder of McDonald's, who um, some might say he's finagled the business out from the McDonald brothers, but whatever happened, he was it. And he saw in George kind of a spark of ambition, and George became the first international licensee to get a franchise for Eastern Canada. Right, because there was already McDonald's in the West Coast. There was. There Do you f- know what city? Yeah, it was in Richmond, B.C., I think was the first McDonald's. In fact, one of the media outlets ran a correction to say that it wasn't George had opened the first his first McDonald's in London. But the first McDonald's was in uh, Richmond. And Ray Kroc, sensing that uh, somebody had might have gotten the better of him, offered to buy this license for a million dollars from George. George said no. And the first McDonald's opened, he opened the first McDonald's in London in 1968. And they embarked on a life in a new country. I mean, the, the whole idea of opening these golden arches. It wasn't just Ontario. He did it all across Canada. Yeah, I tried to, uh, I wrote McDonald's a letter the other day asking how many restaurants opened under Mr. Cohen. They didn't respond, but we can safely say it's hundreds. And apparently his flagship, his his personal store was at the corner of Bloor and Avenue Road. Right. Across from the ROM. Very often you could see him during busy times and there are photos of him doing this and it wasn't for a photo op. He would roll up his sleeves and actually pitch in. He would bag orders, he would prepare the burgers, he would help out the staff. I'm going to tell you a story that it's not in any of the papers, but it's a family lore. He was closely, close friends with my grandfather, my late grandfather, and he would send him notes. And I remember getting this as a young girl, and I thought it was the coolest thing. He wouldn't just send like a typed letter, he would send handwritten notes on these round McDonald's cards that had a Big Mac. It was like shaped like a Big Mac. You opened it up and he wrote his little note in it to my grandfather. And I thought that was, I wish we'd kept it, you know, that would be, you know, such a a treasure item. From what I understand, those cards were redeemable for a hamburger. Mm -hmm. I'm sure my grandfather never, never went. So if you went, you you gave him your card and you got a hamburger. Yeah, which is really, really cool. Now, how did he end up going behind the Iron Curtain and becoming McDonald's in Moscow and, of course, across Russia. Well, that's a story in itself, and it's outlined, uh, I believe, somewhere, and I believe he wrote a book about it. He did. It was called To Russia with Fries. Russia with Fries. It all began at the 1976 Olympics in Montreal, a chance encounter with the Russian delegation. 
And I, I don't, we don't know what went on in that conversation, but it did spark a kind of determination in him to do the impossible, to bring a major, what was then seen as an American. It was like the symbol of America in a way, right? That's just it. It was on par with Coca-Cola. And so if, if you ask Russians, you know, the two great symbols of, or the symbols of American industrialism and capitalism and commercialism, it would be like General Motors, Coca-Cola and McDonald's. Even by then, McDonald's, those golden arches were, you know, burned into everyone's brain. Um, he didn't know any Russian, but George made connections and he ended up making friends with some thinkers, you might say, in the former USSR. Uh, Gorbachev was not among them, but Gorbachev came to trust and respect him. Gorbachev, of course, being for our younger listeners, the, the last leader of the Soviet Union. And he, they shared his vision for a Russia that engaged collaboratively with the West, even if it meant, you know, selling something like innocuous, like burgers. I guess it was innocuous enough. It wasn't a car company. It wasn't something that would undermine the Russian system. They weren't competing with Russia on any level. I don't know if the Russians even made hamburgers. But it was a long, long haul. And in 1990, the first McDonald's opened in former Soviet Union. So Pushkin Square, the first McDonald's, and the story was that people were lining up at 4 a.m. to get into this wonderful symbol of, of Western capitalism and have a burger. It became one of the most recognized, celebrated, and successful businesses in history to get into Russia. Subsequently, Kohan was named Russia's, quote, and I like this, capitalist hero of labor. I don't know if that's a, an award or a smear or not, but it's what, that's that's what he was known as. And at the time, it was McDonald's biggest restaurant was the one in Moscow. I think it's been now taken over by one in uh, Beijing, I believe. It accepted only Russian rubles, no hard currency, no American dollars. Now, due to the way the Soviet slash Russian economy worked, which it didn't, uh, the company had to create its own supply chain in Russia, including farming, packaging, apparently even raising the cows that uh, produce the meat. And it, we mentioned we mentioned Coca-Cola. His son helped bring Coca-Cola to Russia. His son, Craig Cohen, helped bring Coca-Cola to Russia. His family as well have been prominent, especially his son, Mark, who was the commissioner of the Canadian Football League. Now, you know, we're talking about the name George Cohan and McDonald's, but he was a big philanthropist as well and did a lot. We all have heard, maybe you guys have all heard of the Ronald McDonald houses. What was his involvement in setting that up? He founded the Ronald McDonald's Charities, which, as we know, allows people to uh, to stay near a loved one if that loved one, a child, is in the hospital. And so they're, they're free of charge. He thought that up. He was also one of at least two people I know, both Jewish, who helped save Toronto's Santa Claus parade, the other being Irv Ungerman. And they oh, the chicken man. The chicken man and the bar. And war veteran, yeah. Uh, recognizing team. it as a, as a sort of beacon of celebration. And they got together and it was in financial trouble. Uh, George also chaired the Ontario Science Center. He was actively involved in Israel Bonds Canada. But I have to say that he was also one of the original investors of the Canadian Jewish News, one of the um, board of directors, they called them, who bought the paper out from under Meyer Nuremberger in, I believe, 1971. So if you go back to those old mastheads, he was on them. I didn't know that. Yeah. So were there any kosher McDonald's and can anything you could eat in Canada that was kosher? I, I don't think so, but you'd have to look to Israel. I, hadn't, I don't know if there were, I remember some sort of struggle to, you know, a kosher meat, no cheeseburgers. I don't know if it was successful. I just don't know. 
we're going to turn away from fast food, which is not good for our next uh, our next honorable mention. Because if you eat too much McDonald's, you're not going to fit into any Harry Rosen fashions, especially because Harry, the late Harry Rosen, you know, dressed menswear suits from Europe, very stylish basically um, high-end fashion and I don't know our audience probably won't be able to see us but I wouldn't be saying that we would be the kind of people that customers who would shop there <laughs> we're more of the ink-stained wretch <laughs> type sloppy journalists well I think I shopped there at one point but I whatever it was I couldn't afford it yeah. right because it was on the mink mile of Bloor Street in Toronto right. still is yeah it's and it was a high-end menswear brand uh, and he certainly um redefined or help men redefine themselves uh, because you know everyone wants to look at least passable and uh, if you can afford Harry Rosen clothes you automatically look good in them because uh, a lot of the suits were made to measure some of them were even if they were on the off the rack they they were good suits a lot of people I've spoken to or some people I've spoken to didn't know that Harry Rosen was a real person they just automatically equate the name to the store, to the brand. That's how deeply it became ingrained in people's minds. You see, Harry Rosen, high-end menswear. I heard uh, one person, I think it was Jeannie Becker, say that the only other kind of person that she knew in the fashion business, like Harry Rosen, was Valentino, who was also a real person. Yeah. But the two had similar... Uh, ways in terms of how they curated their customers and developed relationships with their customers that brought them back. Do you know how he got started in business? Well, he got started in 1954, uh, I think, with a $500 loan. And it was a store on Parliament Street. It was a single store. And from there, and this is remarkable, I'll say it off the top before I forget, he ran this company for 51 years, which is absolutely remarkable to me. His son, Larry Rosen, is now chairman and CEO. But tell us, tell us. If so I'm going to play the tape for our listeners uh, as well. But uh, the story is Harry Rosen, you said he got a $500 loan. He was working part time in, in a men's store in Toronto after the Second World War. And he had a friend of the family who ran laundry I guess there was like a coin laundry operations, you know, about this. And so how did the down payment get paid for this new real estate on Parliament Street? Now, this was either a friend or a close relative who um, had a, a, a real brainstorm to do a pay uh, a laundry machines, the first pay laundry machines in apartment buildings. You know, when you put in a quarter, uh, you slide a quarter into the washing machine, you slide a quarter into the dryer and off you go. And uh, he had done quite well. He figured this out, out even serviced the machines himself. The, the name escapes me, but he lent Harry Rosen money. $500 in quarters. In quarters. <laughs> Can you imagine? He brought this bag of quarters to the landlord. And he brought his bag of quarters to the landlord and said, I'll, I'll, the next batch apparently won't be in quarters, but here you are. I must have waited a ton. I agreed that I would pay $500 down. And I went to my father and I said, I need $500. And my father didn't have $500. But we had a relative that came over from the, uh, Europe after the war, bought a small business in, uh, in that laundered clothing for people in, in apartments, buildings. You put in a quarter, you got, you know, washed your things. So my father went to him and asked him for $500, and he gave him $500 in quarters. So I took the $500 in quarters, and I gave it to the merchant, and I said, I'll pay you the rest in 60 days. And uh, with that, I managed to transfer the lease you could see I had very little overhead and I was living at home. So now the question was, where am I going to get the money for the inventory? 
Uh, I couldn't get any credit other than one neckwear manufacturer gave me $250 in neckwear. I love that story. Now, he, he came up with what people coined the phrase closemanship. What I understand from that is that he really remembered each customer. He would have a card where the customer would come in and he would know, you know, the sizes and the measurements, of course, but then the swatch, um, he would take a piece of fabric that he had, for which suit he made before. And then he would also write down things like the guy's business, his family life, so that he could basically create an image for this man. And then he would reach out and know for the next time. And customers really loved that and they adored him and they came from all over high society and mainly um, the advertising world at first and Bay Street and publishing. Um, and he had a very good personal sense, and he, he was a very a real. I know, I know this has been said of him, but it was true. He was a real gentleman, and he was. He took notice of you. I mean, just to personalize the story, I interviewed him in the mid 1980s. He was leading some uh, Jewish communal campaign. I don't remember if it was Israel Bonds or something like it. And I went to interview him. Couldn't have been a nicer man. And I'm not exactly a fashion plate. You might have noticed, but at the time, I was wearing a really nice watch that I had bought. One for myself, one for my, my wife. They were his and her watches. They were really quite striking. And most of the time, I thought my watch was hidden under my sleeve. And as we shook hands to, to leave, he said to me, that is a really, really nice watch you're wearing. And I was shocked that he, A, he noticed it, and B, that he paid me a compliment because, as I said, I did not shop at Harry Rosen at the time. Uh, in terms of uh, public campaigns, he was involved in the Canadian Paraplegic Association, Breast Cancer other cancers, uh, Mount, Mount Sinai, Friends for Life campaign, and the United Way he gave to CAMH very generously. So uh, mostly health-related. I should add that for those of you who think he only uh, trafficked in very high-end tailored suits, he did have 19 stores, but recently it expanded to include a casual wear connection. I don't know what casual wear is exactly, but I but I imagine it's less expensive. Friday dress down at the office. Of course, during, you know, COVID, everyone was in sweatpants and the bottom and a nice shirt and tie on the top, right? On their Zoom. Casual wear. I'm sure still very nice casual wear, but I think he recognized there was a market for that too. Sounds like an amazing man. And I wish that I had bought that sweater from my husband when I was first dating him at Harry Rosen store. He actually said, no, I will never wear something and it's too expensive. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Well, now that I think about it, I did buy something there. I wanted a certain color tie to go with a certain color suit for my daughter's bat mitzvah. Couldn't find one and walked into Harry Rosen and found it right away. More than I cared to spend, but it looked good. And I still have it. And it's totally out of fashion because it's either too wide or too narrow. <laughs> well, I'm sure you have lots of nachas from this story and the memory. And Ron, we often have to say goodbye to beloved Holocaust survivors and educators in Canada as there are many of them have passed, but now the most senior ones are reaching that age. And the community said goodbye during the last few months to Vera Schiff of Toronto, who lost 50 family members in the Holocaust, spent time in Theresienstadt. She was from Prague and she became a beloved Holocaust author and educator in Toronto. I never met her, but I know you know a bit more about this story than I do being a Holocaust tour guide yourself now at the Toronto Holocaust Museum. Yeah, well, Vera Schiff is sort of a household name at the Holocaust Museum. She was, um, <clears throat> she spoke to hundreds, if not thousands of students over the years, an excellent speaker, an excellent educator. Uh, she was one of those people who kids immediately took to and wanted to listen to. And uh, 
um, a really warm and generous person, born, as you say, in Prague, 1926, a uh, family had lived there for generations. Her father held a high position. They were very assimilated. According to her, they never experienced any anti-Semitism until after the German occupation in 1939. As you mentioned, in 1942, the family was deported to the Theresienstadt ghetto just outside Prague. Uh, Vera was assigned to work in the hospital. Um, somehow she managed to avoid deportations to the death camps. Uh, it's it's better to go online and let her tell the story. Her parents, her sister, her grandmother all died in the ghetto. She met her future husband in Theresienstadt, so something good came out of that. Um, they settled in Prague. They stayed in Prague after the war, decided to move to Israel in 1949, and came to Canada in 1961. So um, she wrote her memoirs, Hair Raising, of course. She published several books about the Holocaust. And as I say, she spoke to just dozens of schools and, and all over the country. Uh, she was awarded, in fact, an honorary doctorate by the University of New Brunswick. Uh, you know, and another voice lost, another witness lost, but her voice lives on and her and her uh, memories live on. If anyone wants to watch one of her webinars that she did, because during the COVID pandemic, when everyone was in lockdown, she continued, as many Holocaust survivors did, to to educate people through their Zooms. That's right. We didn't see my father for several weeks because the men's barracks were closed. Initially, the friend of my father arranged that I have met him in these underground passages uh, where, <coughs> where he came and brought me some food because he knew one thing, we were star badly starving. That was the horrible part of every life in camp. Now, you mentioned the word voice, and so that brings us to another of our honorable mentions, the late Zelda Young, who for many people in Ontario, uh, in Toronto, and also in Ottawa, a radio host on CHIN Radio. She had her own show by her own name. I never had the chance to be interviewed by her, but you need to tell our audience uh, about Zelda Young. Zelda Young, somebody ought to figure out how she did it. She started she took over from her father. Her father had a radio show called The Jewish Hour, a very well-regarded show. His name was Sam Yachtman. And everyone listened to that show. It was a mix of Yiddish and all kinds of interviews and very, very beloved show. She took over for him, get this, in 1976 and pumped out, as I understand it, six days a week since 1976. She was on six days a week. On Sundays, on every day, she was weekdays, she was on the FM dial. On Sunday, she was on the AM dial, and it's quite an accomplishment uh, to be on the air that long. Her father came along only 10 years after Chin launched in 1966, so this this show has been on the air for a long, long time. She was the, she hosted the longest-running Jewish radio show in Canada. It wasn't to my taste. It was a variety show. It was guest interviews, some news from Israel, a lot of stuff around um, health care and uh, investments and uh, a voice for Chabad, a Chabad local Chabad rabbi. But it went on to be syndicated in Vancouver, I believe, and in Florida until about the year 2000. She also hosted um, a Jewish TV show. People, very few people remember this one. It was called Tapestry, not to be confused with the CBC Tapestry show. And that was renamed later. It was probably for that reason re renamed the Zelda Young Show. And that was on from 1986 to 1993. So, you know, a real mainstay if you tuned in every day.
I did when I was driving. I couldn't believe the the people that she had on every single day as well. Uh, Rabbi Mendel Kaplan and Sonny Goldstein, who was the investment guy. And she had a physiotherapist that was on all the time talking about uh, her, you know, treatments of aches and pains and wellness. That's right. So uh, for, for sheer longevity and sheer stick-to-itiveness, uh, Zelda got my respect. She died uh, last September at the age of 73 of cancer. Too young. Well, it's interesting, but my, my late father, who was the pioneer of this program, never, ever told me the talk would solve anything. He always okay. said, you have to fight your way out of any mess. And I'm, he was a really, he was a pacifist, but he, he was right. And I used to laugh and say, you're kidding me. You can talk to anybody and eventually can win your way over. Well, that's a bunch of crap. And we all know that. You mentioned the Holocaust survivors. We have to say a little bit about Willie Glazer from Montreal. I'll just mention that he was a kinder transport survivor, went to England and worked for a couple of years and then found out that the Polish army in exile was forming uh, units to go fight the Nazis. So he enlisted while he was in England. He fought with the Polish army in World War II. After the war, he moved to Canada, he moved to Montreal, and Willie became a beloved Holocaust educator as well, and a very proud veteran. He was always at these events for the Jewish War Veterans in Montreal. He died at the age of 102, and there's a, an obit about him on our website by Janice Arnold. The favorite part of which is, I'm going to read from it, Glazer would find a sense of urgency when he was put in charge of interrogating German prisoners of war in France including members of the Waffen-SS, obviously after the war. They were shocked to find not only a fellow German, but a Jew, a fighting one, was their captor. That was very well put by Janice Arnold. After the armistice, Glazer remained in the Polish forces until 1947, and he went undercover in a displaced persons camp to ferret out Nazis hiding among the refugees. This is a movie-worthy story. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Very, very well known in Montreal. Speaking of Montreal, uh, we have a couple of um, people who did pass away that we should mention. Professor Gershon Hundert, who was a professor uh, beloved by McGill students and Jewish education, people who, who studied Jewish studies. Uh, also in Toronto last year, we should mention Howard Edelman, Professor Howard Edelman at York University. And one more, Harry Bricks, another Harry, not Harry Rosen, Harry Bricks founded the Toy Town store long time on Avenue Road in Toronto. One of the great toy stores you'll ever be in. Did you ever go there? Oh, it's amazing. Tell oh, me it's more. Amazing. One it's, it's just a very cool place where you'll find really challenging things for kids. Puzzles what? and things that challenge them, not just play things. And Ron, we would be totally remiss if we didn't do an honorable mention briefly for our friend, the former CEO and editor-in-chief of the CJN, Yoni Goldstein's late father, Moisha, who passed away December the 29th, suddenly in Toronto. For those of you who may know him, because you may have been driving down Bathurst, he was legendary. Aside from his Yiddish, his religious exp expertise and, and knew how to, how to lane, uh, pray and read the Torah, what was he so famous for? He was famous for being the guy everyone looked at askance and wondering if there was anything wrong with this man. He would stand on the street and wave at people, just wave hello. Wave at cars, wave at people walking by. It was always a good morning. It's a wonderful morning. People would stop their cars and ask if he was all right. And he was just full of joy in life, and that's what he did. He was known for simply waving 
Hello, good morning. It's a wonderful morning. While he was out walking his dog. What miracles we shared together. You brought kindness, smiling, and friendship to strangers. And I watched as they gave it back. At first, I thought it was weird. But then I saw the impact it had. And making someone smile or wave, wow. It costs nothing, and it means everything. Weiss, you taught me what it means just to be kind. Thank you so much. And um, apart from, he was a Torah scholar, a, a Talmudic scholar, a very wise and learned man, and a family law lawyer. Uh, something Yoni told me just recently was that his father refused in family law disputes, refused to represent those men who, re who did not give a get to their wives. It's the one area that he said no to. And so that Deeply sort of, principled. that they uh, are very principled, very, uh, yeah, uh, men and, and somebody who, according to the eulogy we heard at his funeral, mm -hmm. was uh, really something, born in Hungary and um, came here as a young child. Not speaking a word of English. Not speaking a word of English. Well. You know English. well in your Well, I sort of do, but I, we had the opposite experience, whereas his parents refused to speak Hungarian so that everyone learned English. Uh, we, we only spoke Hungarian at home, and I learned English anyway, so six of one. Well, we send our deepest condolences out to Yoni, to his family, uh, on the loss of your father, Moish. And um, you should know our CEO, Yoni, has moved on to new opportunities after 10 years at the helm of CJN. Most of the credit to the relaunch after the closure uh, during COVID goes to Yoni and bringing us to where we are today. We want to thank you all for your financial support of the Canadian Jewish News. Ron, our listeners would maybe want to know this, a little behind-the-scenes quelling uh, that we should do. We are beyond thrilled and grateful that the CJN now has close to 2,000 families and charitable donations who've joined as donors and support our work this past year. That's 1,877 individual donations in 2023. Without you, we wouldn't be doing our honorable mentions or anything else, and we thank you so much for taking us along with you on our journey. Until next time, Ron, thanks for being here. Thank you, pleasure. Thanks for listening to the CJN Daily.